happen and build bridges into the future one week at a time. Sunday nights will never be the same. The week starts here, 7.30 to 9 p.m., right here on 94.1 KPFA. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school, get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up in darkness from the ones who walk in light light them up boys there's your picture drop the shadows out of sight this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, November the 3rd, 2015. Rain. Rain at last. Fall has fallen. (laughs) At my door, the leaves are falling. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. No sad songs this season. Just TV and sympathy. Now, before I start running off about the uh, cable stuff. I want. Oh, here it is. Doc. Uh, let's see. It's a documentary, and I caught it about four o'clock this morning. And I thought I should mention it because of the political junkies hereabouts. Uh, it's a documentary about Ambassador Richard Holbrook. It's done by his son, uh, David. David Holbrook, right. <laughs> anyway, you can get it on demand. Uh, it's an HBO cable production, 100 minutes long. Uh, now, uh, Richard Holbrook was a major figure in Washington until 2010 when he died of a heart attack. Now, his son David has made this documentary about his father's life in public affairs with a few notes about his personal life. Now, Richard Holbrook was born in 1941. Makes him a baby boomer. Some claim that he is responsible for bringing peace to Bosnia. Not only that, <laughs> one time at the UN, yes, he he persuaded Jesse Helms to pay our dues. The United States was not paying its dues to the United Nations. And uh, Albrook had to, well, twist his arm a little bit. Uh, in the documentary, it says he, he just wore him out. Uh, anyway, uh, Richard Holbrook is, what is that? He's 
not just a long term. Well, he started out in Vietnam as a kid, really. Uh, his most recent job was ambassador to uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan. Someone, I think this son, was interviewed the other day and he said that his father would be on a plane right now to uh, help the victims of the earthquake uh, if he were alive. Anyway, the documentary does track his career. Uh, uh, let's see, it says here that he traveled to 180 countries in his lifetime. That's a good <laughs> That's a good number. I'm trying to think how many, how many Hillary Clinton clocked. She keeps talking about how many countries she visited. Anyway, Holbrook emerges as a dramatic figure. His bursting with what um, his intimate companion, Diane Sawyer, calls vitality. Yep. Uh, I don't know the years. Let's see. I think, was it six years? Anyway, they had a long uh, long-term relationship. Uh, then, of course, we know Diane Sawyer married uh, Mike Nichols, one of America's uh, great artists, theater, Mike Nichols. Wow. Anyway, looks like Diane Sawyer is the world's most, uh, what do you call it? not eligible widow, but uh, never mind. No nonsense, no nonsense. There are other women in the documentary, and they all have good things to say about uh, Holbrook. Very charismatic. Uh, vitality, right? Samantha Power. Uh, she had really good things to say. Uh, Christian Amampour. Uh, she actually, I think she sent him a card of a peaceful Sarajevo saying that he was responsible for that. Anyway, Hillary Clinton certainly thinks that he, uh, well, they asked her if she thought he would uh, have been her choice for Secretary of State had she won the election in 2008. And uh, she said she couldn't think of anyone else. Right. The writers on the show were... Pithy, pithy types, New Yorker writers. Uh, they were interviewed by David Holbrook, the son of people like George Packer. Uh, that's uh, actually he he uh, he's doing the biography, or he did the biography. I haven't got it in front of me here. Uh, he's he's the right person to do it. George Packer, New York, uh, the New Yorker magazine. Even Henry Kissinger, Henry Kissinger, had swell things to say. He admitted that Holbrook was honest and that he had an unusually perceptive understanding of the political realities, right off beginning with Vietnam. Uh, he, Holbrook, understood that uh, Washington just didn't get it. Uh, Actually, this heroic stature, this honesty, prevented him from getting a couple of very high-profile jobs. People were afraid he couldn't keep his mouth shut. Robert McNamara is another one of the insiders in Washington who was unable to grasp the realities in Vietnam. Uh, Holbrook tried to explain things to him. Uh, <laughs> anyway, 
the documentary uh, here notices, yes, they make a little note here and they say, mm, uh, Holbrook was asked if, uh, if a movie were to be made of his life, yes, a uh, movie, he, they asked him, uh, you know, a, a feature film. They said, who, who would he want to play his part? He said, Denzel Washington. Recently, uh, when he began to work for President Obama, he was greeted by Barack, uh, calling him Dick, you know, Dick Holbrook. Well, then he told the president, no, please call him Richard. He said it was something that uh, mattered a great deal to his wife. That's terrific, Utzpah. The personal stuff in the documentary shows this son, David, trying to know the father. Uh, apparently, the father had so little time to be a father, uh, and the son says that he didn't really know how. Ah, Americana. There is a telling moment when Richard Holbrook is at the microphone, uh, accepting a, uh, either an award, making a speech, something. He's standing there next to Bill Clinton. And uh, he's trying to talk about his own father. Uh, he breaks down for just a moment, turning to Clinton and saying that he he never tried to talk about his father in public. Uh, just another all-American man, so it goes. Anyway, the documentary is on HBO, even as I speak, on demand, uh, or this evening, if you're up for it. Uh, let's see, what have I got here? I've got three... Three offerings on cable TV. I hope I have time to cover them all. There's three grown-up stories. And then a couple of... Well, let's talk about kids' films, too. Uh, there's uh, Indian Summer on PBS. That's a series about the agony of India. About 1932, let's see, 15 years before independence from the British uh, and then there's a surreal story I want to talk about. Um, it's all about our present-day malaise. It's called The Leftovers. It's our existential anguish in the face of our unknown future here in these United States. That show, yes, uh, called The Leftovers. It's in its second season now. It's on Showtime. That's a premium channel. Costs money, you know. Uh the leftovers of the title, these are those humans who are survivors, but they are lost souls. They're struggling to mend their lives. <laughs> Sound familiar, does it? Uh, and then the most unique story I want to talk about on cable is, uh, well, it's a search for a whole new spin on the past, on our human history. It's titled The Nick, K-N-I-C-K, The Nick. It's on a uh, premium channel, uh, Max. Now, most people don't get that one. That's one of the more esoteric channels. Again, costs money. Uh, I can access it on H-B-O-W, H-B-O-W, for now. Uh, 
But that's not on demand. Oh, well, I'm not going to talk about the tech. See if you can find the Nick. It's a story all about a hospital in New York City in 1900. The name of the hospital is the Knickerbocker. Knickerbockers were, um, well, they're synonymous with it. Uh, The rich folks, you know, uh, 1900. uh, By this week in the second season, got up to 1902, the shock. The shocks of seeing medicine as it was practiced more than a hundred years ago in the heart of urban civilization is pretty horrific and haunting. Uh, Now, before I try to unpack these three theatrical miracles I just mentioned, I did want to look at plays for children because the season is the season. Tiny Tim time. Anyway. It's just too hard to cover all the kids' stuff. But, uh, well, if you don't like A Night at the Museum, that's okay. It's goofy, but I just love the monkey. Uh, those movies are uh, easy to access. Uh, yes, A Night in the Museum. Things come alive in the museum at night. Living history. <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt, played by... Um, Played by long lost comedian. Yes, too sad, too sad for words. Robin Williams, uh, up there on his horse playing Teddy Roosevelt. He says, no, he wasn't. He isn't Teddy Roosevelt. He's just a polystyrofoam statue. Anyway, uh, there are two films now about the night in the museum. The, uh, <clears throat> The one I like the most, well, the Neanderthal, who has no use for metaphor, is a hoot. That's my favorite. It's also, yeah, the, the lead takes two roles, right? Uh, and uh, the Neanderthal character, he takes the words, use your head. He takes those words literally. <laughs> yes. Love it. The kids love it, too. Um Anyway, if I buy a film, put out cash for a Christmas present this year, it has to be the whimsical charmer, Paddington the Bear. Now, the family that adopts this adorable teddy bear. No, no, not teddy bear. That's another bear. This one is closer to Winnie the Pooh, A.A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh. Now, this British family that takes him in and lets him live in their home in London. They name him Paddington because they found him in Paddington Station. You know, down in the tube. The movie is full of references and resemblances to children's books. All the books in English children's literature. Anglophiles will love it. Uh, J.K. Rowling has certainly done the derivative deed in her Harry Potter books. My favorite character in Paddington is the grandmother, the one who can drink her adversary under the table when Paddington is in danger. Uh, uh, Yes, she's in danger from some demented taxidermist played by Nicole Kidman, by the way. The grandmother is played by Julie Walters. 
a very special British character actor that most people recognize, even if they don't know her name. She's certainly familiar by now. She's in that BBC talent pool. Now, Julia Walters also has a major role in the first of my big three choices today. Yes, she's in uh, Indian Summers. That's plural. Uh, India in 1932. She plays a British colonial who will do damn near anything to protect her imperial role, place, uh, status at the top of the hierarchy. Um, her hierarchy surrounds the Viceroy. The British class structure is made of iron and the only thing more rigid in uh, the India of 1932, has to be the caste system in this occupied country. Uh, untouchables at the bottom, coming to a head uh, with that bit in the last episode. Uh, now, you know, these arrogant Europeans uh, occupy this country and... Uh, in a way, well, you know how it is. Uh, there's a lot of stories about India and Britain and how how there's a kind of a, I don't know, osmosis procedure going on there. Uh, anyway, until 1947, uh, there was a partition. Yes, that's when everything changed. Uh, India and Pakistan became separate states, nations, separate but unequal, setting up the scene for their history's ongoing tragic fate, I think, of our civil war. Uh, now, back in the 1980s, a lot of you, if you're a television watcher, uh, you remember a show called The Jewel in the Crown, a long-running series. It was taken from a famous novel, Jewel in the Crown, it focused on the hubris of the British imperialists. Uh, their illusions were manifest in their concept of the divine right of kings, or in the case of the 19th century empire, it was the right of the queen, Queen Victoria, who died just after the turn of the 20th century. Uh, hmm, I've can catch um, Jewel in the Crown from time to time. Some local stations, PBS stations locally, like to run it again. I think it's 83, 84, mid-80s, mid-1980s. Uh, the title uh, describing the Jewel in the Crown as India itself. There is a picture, framed picture, of Victoria on her throne with a crown on her head. It features the jewel, India. This thing is a sad symbol of the things to come. It's broken at some, uh, some point. And Peggy Ashcroft, yes, Peggy Ashcroft, uh, the great English actor, comes forth. She's the most heartbroken, the most, uh, uh, what would you call it, sensitive vulnerable character in the uh, series. She plays this broken-hearted spinster, one of the few who gets it. Uh, her character 
goes mad. It's the result of her devastating disillusion regarding her own culture, uh, the fact that uh, the British Empire is a hypocritical, a hypocritical culture there, yes. Uh, she is uh, also despised on the basis of a rumor of lesbian behavior, that sort of thing. Uh, there's a moment in Jewel in the Crown that stays with me forever now. Let's see. Peggy Ashcroft, incarcerated under the care of the nuns. She is at this point mute. She refuses to speak. Uh, she has this little notepad to communicate with the nun who is tending to her. Uh, at one point, this oh-so-refined and gentle soul scrawls on her notepad and shoves it at the nun. Uh, bugger the Pope. The moment I cannot forget is her vision, just about that time. I suppose it was, a, well, it might have been a delusion, but it, uh, or maybe telepathy. It's a great explosion the audience can interpret. Uh, a blinding light, yes, comes through her window there, and she sees halfway around the world to the explosion of the atomic bomb hitting Hiroshima in 1945. For her, for this woman whose sensibilities are heightened by her madness, for her, this is more than a revelation. Uh, well, it's the apocalypse. The end of Western civilization, perhaps certainly the end of the British Empire. Now, this current series, Indian Summer, this is not Jewel in the Crown, but it certainly hits some of the same nerves. This... Uh, Actor Julie Walters, her role in the uh, Indian Summers is a synthesis of the class cruelty that is part of every human relationship in India at this time. Each group, tribe, class, uh, caste uh, has its villains and its heroes, most of all its victims, uh, Talk about identity politics. A young woman who has left her husband and fled, uh, fled home to India where she grew up. Uh, yes, her husband's back there in England. Uh, she feels at home here. Strange. Uh, she has a young son, an infant, and she's pretending to be a widow. She's, uh, literally blackmailed by a vindictive clergyman's wife who knows her story and uh, that she is a runaway wife. Her situation grows worse when she falls in love with a young Indian Muslim, I guess. Yes, Muslim. Uh, he is a rising bureaucrat who works for her brother, who is the man most likely to succeed. He's close to the viceroy and so on. No more telling the plot. <laughs> the plot has so many twists and turns. Uh, I drew a map to the context just to keep it straight, but no sooner did I find that I was sympathizing with a character, someone struggling to be ethical in the face of these dreadful uh, contradictions, and uh, then suddenly, under the threat to his family and to his economic security, he does... Uh, 
unbelievably, unbelievably wrong things. Uh, mm, there's a wonderful little boy. He's the child of, I guess, an untouchable woman. But he's a mixed race little boy. Uh, seems to be the ultimate, the ultimate uh, victim. The uh, half-breeds, yes, the... Uh, Asian, yes, Euro-Asian children. There's a special school for them all. Anyway, no one in this uh, tale is quite innocent. <laughs> I love the the alcoholic landowner, Scotch, a Scotchman. Uh, he's trying to keep uh, keep things in order and help his workers. Ah, uh, well, <laughs> no good deed goes unpunished. You know, uh, I think uh, even when things get totally tangled up, I'm happy to watch this show. I've watched it twice because uh, there's so much melodrama. All these tawdry Englishmen trying to hang on to their privileges. Uh, so grandiose. Some of it's funny until you consider the terrible consequences of... Uh, this socio-political oppression. I'm hanging on mostly for uh, a little more attention, a sharper look at the lives of the women there in 1932. So many books and stories about the British colonials. Uh, and, of course, marriage, uh, sex, love, marriage. Marriage is all about money. Uh, <laughs> Jane Austen, yes. The idealism of the very youngest woman is challenged when her older brother falls in love with a Hindu. The Hindu asks her, the young woman Hindu asks her what she thinks freedom is all about. And the poor child says, oh, that's not the same. That's not the same, you know. All that Gandhi propaganda, you know. Uh, anyway, that girl is young enough to change. Uh, but her mother... Not so much. Anyway, Indian Summers. I think it's Masterpiece Theater. I think it's probably, I don't know how many, I don't know how many uh, episodes. We're on episode, oh gosh, I think it's three, four, five. I'm not sure. Anyway, PBS. You can probably get at least the most recent episode on demand. Now, uh, I'm going to run out of time. I have just a moment to start talking about the Nick. I'll have to save the leftovers for another day. Uh, the Nick is the best work I've seen in many, many years. It has authenticity, verisimilitude. I really thought I was there in the Knickerbocker Hospital in New York City in 1900. Uh, the first episode, they're just putting in electric lights Clive Owen plays the lead, the head surgeon. Uh, the surgeon is a genius. His skills are legendary, but he's also addicted to opium or opiates at any rate. Uh, well, I guess uh, we call it opiates because uh, <laughs> at the beginning of season two, we learn that uh, he is using or he has been given 
heroin to assist him in kicking his cocaine addiction. I don't know about the cocaine addiction. We see him shooting up the cocaine. He goes to a lovely, lovely opium den. Uh, I hope I have time next week to talk about the scenes in the surgery because they may be too graphic for some people. Warning, warning. Anyway, in uh, the Nick, we've got nurses and nuns and society ladies and corrupt health inspectors and, uh, oh gosh, everything, everything that was going on back in the day. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air next Tuesday at the same time. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Here's another community-powered announcement from KPFA. You are invited to enjoy Yolo County's agricultural and artistic diversity at the 8th Annual Art Farm Harvest Gala on November 6th from 6 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. at the Hotel Woodland in Woodland, California. Art will include paintings, photographs, and ceramics by local and regional artists, while food, beer, and wine will be available from over 20 local farms, restaurants, wineries, and breweries. The Roy Country Band will be providing music. This is a benefit for the Yellow Arts Art and Ag Project, Yellow Land Trust, and Yellow Farm to Fork. This event will take place at Hotel Woodland at 436 Main Street in Woodland, California. This event is wheelchair accessible. For more information, please call 530-309-6464 or go to yolo, Y-O-L-O, arts.org.